It's great to be with you. Uh, we are live in the modern today. As you guys are fully aware, aware our modern service uh, tech reality is uh, in transition. So hopefully next week uh, we are on the way to, we have a video booth and we'll be producing this service. And uh, that's exciting as we cast this service live uh, out on Facebook and YouTube. We're really looking forward to that. But it takes a little time to get everything uh, wired correctly. So if you were to go across the hall and see our media room, you'd literally see wires falling from the ceiling as they're getting ready for that. So that's why uh, we are here with you this morning. Pastor Dave is downstairs in the blended service. And so uh, if you want to hear a good sermon, you better go on YouTube later this afternoon. Titus chapter 3 is where we're going to be together this morning. We are walking through the New Testament. We are winding down, if you will. And uh, Paul is talking to his uh, protege, uh, Timothy. And then we are moving on to Titus. Titus chapter 3. We have, I think uh, Friday was our first day in Hebrews, and so for the next couple weeks we're going to be in the book of Hebrews. I'm looking forward to that. But this morning we are looking at the very uh, last little letter from Paul here uh, into Titus. My son Sawyer loves stairs. When he was a kid, if we needed to find him in a public place, we would just look for stairs. At our house, we had stairs, and so where's Sawyer? He's on the stairs. And uh, if you have a young child or you're a young parent, you know what that feels like, putting the gates up, you know, and kind of making sure the kids don't get to the stairs. Because our fear is when they get to the stairs, they're going to fall down the stairs. And so when they're a toddler, it's kind of this really great uh, feat for them to climb the stairs, to go higher and higher. And then when they kind of uh, graduate from toddlerhood, uh, they begin to think, how far can I jump from a height of stairs to the floor without going to the ER? And so... When we moved here at four, he was four years old, we walked into the main lobby and he was like, look at those stairs. <laughs> and so for the next two years, whenever we wanted to try to find Sawyer, we would find him up the stairs. I looked at him up here, I'm like, oh, please, brother, come back down, right? So I remember thinking how, love, how much he loves stairs this week because he came to me on Tuesday night and said, Dad, I want to build a slide down our stairs. And I was like, great, we've got nothing else to do, buddy. So we, uh, as it gets darker, boys become more creative, okay? We can't go outside, we've got to do stuff inside. And so I thought, well, great, so we'll get some blankets and kind of figure this out and get some pillows and we'll kind of create this. Well, here's the thing. I'm a preacher, not an engineer, and so our slide didn't really slide, okay? It was kind of like a bump, 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 and he looked at me like, this is the best you can do, Father? This is all you can give me? And so I was like, yeah, that's pretty much it. So then it turns into, um, let's see how far we can jump down from the stairs. And so if you come to my house, we have a, we have a stair and we have a landing, small landing, and then we have another set of like four or five steps. And so we're not on the, the small step, we're on the big length, we're right here. And so we had put pillows down and we had you know, created this kind of safety deal and Brooke's yelling, hey, what are y'all doing? And I said, nothing, we're fine, right? So Sawyer's leaping like Superman, head first onto the pillows. And I'm like, you were a man. Don't tell your mother, right? And he wanted to start really high and I said, hey buddy, you know, let's, let's bring you down a few notches here because I love you, and I don't want you to bleed, basically. I need you to grab your emotional pillows today, because I'm going to put you down a few notches, all right? And, and I think it's a good place to, uh, for us to start, because I think the church, we as believers, have forgotten what a gospel perspective is. We love Jesus, we sing about Jesus, we, we love the cross, we sing about the realities of the cross. Uh, we just sang that he bore the cross and bore our shame. And in that, we have this great living hope. We love 
to praise the realities of the gospel, but I think sometimes we don't really capture the gospel. And I think a lot of it has to do with where we start. You know, we live in like a feel-good, we don't want to offend anybody kind of society right now. And the gospel at its nature is offensive because it really points to initially your first need. And your first need as a human on this rock is that you have to deal with your sin problem. Now here, when I say sin, some people go, oh man, this is one of those kind of talks. This morning, I got an email like an hour ago from a guy um, who said, I have wanted to come to your church, but I'm afraid that I will feel condemned because of my sin by your pastor and your people. Dot, 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 Christians are the worst. That was an hour ago. You shouldn't check your email before serv- between services. Because then I, I just teared up. This guy thinks that his sin post-Christ, after knowing Jesus, condemns him. And I just want to say to him, and he may be here today, I don't know. Brother, we are all in the same boat. Because all of us to have a proper gospel perspective, have to start with this great need of who God is and this need to fulfill our sin issue. We've got to start there. And I would say to him, any Bible-believing church, the reality is we are all in great need of grace. And that we can look across this room and we can come into a place like this and we can begin playing the comparison game. Man, they look like they got it all together. I don't have it all together, so I can't really be like them. Man, that guy, he serves and I don't really serve. Or or that girl or their kids are perfect. I mean, we play this game all the time. And I just want to say to us this morning, for us to really capture what Paul's going to say to Titus in just a second, for us to capture this true gospel perspective, we need to understand that we all our sinners and we all start at the same place because we're all in great need of God's grace so with that in mind let's pray together Lord as we begin to embark on this journey of your word I I pray father that we not allow our mind our heart our agenda to get in the way father some in this room it's a struggle to talk about sin some in this room they've had a tough week And so the beauty of the gospel is not that we break each other down because of the sin. The beauty of the gospel is that you lift us up and set us free despite our sin. And so God, this morning, let us be encouraged by your truth and your word that we were once dead in our trespass, but you make us alive in Christ. So God, this morning, we have much to celebrate But Father, I pray that we not sit in our pride and fail to remember what we once were, what you did and are doing for us, that we would be compelled, drawn to good work, to showing others the gospel truth in our life as we serve, as we love, as we share. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Titus, Paul.
Paul is, uh, is a teacher of Titus. He is Titus' mentor, and he uh, travels with Titus, but leaves him on the island of Crete, and he says, Titus, listen, there are churches that need to be planted here, but we've got to have leaders in these churches. I want you to go train these leaders. And that's what Titus is about to do. So as you know, the book of Titus is only three chapters. It's real easy. Chapter one is all about the qualifications of leaders. And so Paul reminds Titus, hey, listen, there are certain characteristics that leaders in the church, elders in the church need to have in order to be leaders within God's holy people. Chapter two, Paul reminds Titus, listen, I want you to teach them good doctrine. Forget all the other realities around you, but remind them how not only are they supposed to relate to one another, but how they're supposed to relate to God. And then in chapter three, he says, listen, we are on this journey of doing good works that the people around you will see the gospel in you, but we need to be reminding ourselves of a couple of truths so that we will be compelled to do those good works. Because life will get in the way, we will get lazy, the flesh will begin to come back in our life, and we won't be driven by the Spirit, so we have to remind ourselves what the Spirit does in us, what He did for us, so that we will do good works. And in all of that, we maintain this great gospel perspective. So Titus chapter 3, let's start here in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Paul reminds us to have a good gospel perspective. We need to do three things and remind ourselves of three things. One, the gospel is for us. The gospel is for us. Look at verse 3. He says, for. What is that for there for? That's the question we ought to ask. What is that there for? Why is he saying the word for? Well, he's putting back to verses 1 and 2. So he's going to remind them, listen, you were once in darkness. So because of that, let's remind ourselves of what we ought to do to get out of that. I want you to remind yourselves of that darkness. Why remind ourselves? We'll look at verse 1. Paul says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. So Paul here is alluding to this conflict There's going to happen where Christians are, are going to be at, at, at conflict with other people around them who may not believe what they believe and so he's saying to, to Titus, listen, Titus, remind them not to be in conflict with those people because we were all disobedient. We were all foolish. We were all deceived. He reminds them of what they once were. Paul takes a step back at the past to help them in their present. It's as if He's saying, listen, don't think too highly of yourselves. You're going to have some conflict with the people around you, but in order to have that good relationship with them, you've got to start someplace. You were once like them. You once were just like 
them. Listen, it's a struggle for us to understand our sin nature. But when we understand what sin did and understand what we once were, we maintain a good gospel perspective. So let's take a look at it. What does sin do when we as sinners live out this sin? What did we do? What were we once like? Well, it describes it in great detail. A couple of things that sin does. One, sin deceives. You were once foolish. This word foolish is to be completely ignorant. You had no idea who God was and what he was about. You had no understanding of God, but you lived your life as if you didn't care. You were foolish. Sin deceives. Sin only deceives. Sin disobeys. It takes another step. It's one thing not to know you're doing wrong. It's another thing entirely to know what is wrong and yet still do it. And that's what sin does. You were once disobedient. You know, people don't avoid the gospel because of a lack of facts. People avoid the gospel because of proud and unrepentant hearts. And that's what Paul is reminding Titus. Listen, remind them they were once disobedient. Jeremiah 17 says it this way, that, that the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. They were leaning back into their own heart and not realizing that all the time their heart was leading them towards destruction. Sin disobeys. Sin dictates. Scripture says that we ourselves were slaves to our own pleasure and passions. That, that we were being controlled by something. That we were trapped by the lure of lust in our life. And that trap was deciding how we were living. We basically had no ability to control ourselves. We were slaves to our own pleasure. You know, Paul in, in Romans chapter 3, 10 and on says it this way. None is, righteousness, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. All the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And a few verses on down, Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Their sin dictated what they did. Sin not only dictates, sin detests. We're moving into relationships now. It says that they were living their life in malice. That it was normal for them to, to have ill will towards others. Spending their day thinking about how they could get back at other people. And, and we think about that and go, yes, that's not just for them. Paul is saying, hey, that was us. We were once just like this, living in malice. But not just malice. But also, living in envy. Sin desires. Sin wants what it can't have. And in that jealousy, in that unquenchable desire to possess something you can't have, there is disappointment and there is frustration. But listen, people make really bad decisions because they're envious. Sin desires. And last here in this little section, it says, reminds us that sin destroys. It says that we were hateful. We were hated by others, and we are hating one another. Despising anyone who'd get in their way, sin destroyed those relationships, living a life of hate. This is who we were. This was our life before Christ. This is not only a life of a sinner. Listen, let's get real. Let's get honest. Let's put those emotional pillows down. This is you. 
This was me. This is how we once were, and we have to capture this idea in order to maintain this right gospel perspective. But let me tell you, I don't like to look back at this. I feel like I need a hug right now. All, the, all that sin did and all it turned me into, I don't want to look back at that. Who wants to open up their, their closet of old skeletons or open up old wounds? But Paul says, listen, we got to remember what we once were. But we don't easily do that. I think we don't easily do that for a couple of reasons. One, some of you, me included, were saved really young. So my life before Christ, I really don't remember. And, and, and I don't remember all that that really meant for me. I don't remember bad things. I don't remember uh, living in malice or envy. I don't remember those kinds of realities. But I know enough about sin to know that's who I was. But some of us don't think back because we don't have a lot to look back on. Some of us don't like to look back because we're ashamed. We're ashamed of the old life. We've got guilt, and, and, and the enemy uses our past sin against us in our present reality and, and, and paralyzes us to move forward in our future. We don't like to look back because we're ashamed. But I think a lot of us, if we're honest, we don't like to look back because we're prideful. Because to, to, we don't like to think about the fact that we did wrong. And in our pride, we minimize sin. Therefore, we minimize this gospel perspective. So how do we do that? Well, these views, understand that these views hijack this proper perspective. Can I just tell you, if you were saved at a young age, I think it's important for you to realize just how significant the gospel is. Like, you don't live a life necessarily where we, we hear these great, incredible testimonies of men and women living a life away from God for many, many years and lots of consequence, lots of pain. Uh, but then they have like this but God kind of reality, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, right here in Titus chapter 3. But God does something incredible and saves them, and now they get to live this new life. They have a lot to look back on, and so I think because of that, they have this sense of, of really the gravity of the gospel. And if you were saved as a young man or young woman, you might minimize that. So it's good for us to stop here and remind ourselves of the gravity of the gospel. If you've got shame in your life of what your life was before Christ, can I just remind you that that Romans 8, 1 is for you, there is now no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So don't live with that shame over your life. You have been set free from that. So don't allow the enemy to bring that back in and put a veil over your heart or a veil over your life by which you look at the world through your shame. <laughs> Can I just tell you that when the Holy Spirit did his work in you, when you trusted Christ and the Holy Spirit washed away your sin, that veil was torn, and you long, no longer have to look at life with that veil of sin and shame and guilt any longer. You are not condemned. But if you're like me, we live a little pride in our life, today is about realizing and understanding that it's not about my good works that gives me good grace. It's about his work on the cross that gives me grace. So that's where we are. Proper perspective means that we have to realize the gospel is for us because we once were. But secondly, a proper gospel perspective reminds us that we've got to be thoughtful that the gospel is to us. Okay? Not just that the gospel is for us, but the gospel came to us. Despite all of our evil, despite all of our intention, the gospel came to us. And, and that's pretty incredible to think about all that who we once were, and then the gospel comes to us despite of us. This passage of Scripture is a parallel passage to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 5. 
And what I mean by that is Paul describes, again, the darkness of our life, and then again, what Jesus does to radically change us. Listen to the first part of Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead in your trespasses, in, the, in which you once walked to the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, and the spirit that now is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature, listen to this, children of wrath, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together in Christ. By the grace you have been saved. It is a miracle that the gospel comes to us. And when I maintain that gospel perspective, it makes me so grateful. It makes me so awestruck of the wonder of who Jesus is and how he would think of me to take away my sin, the gospel came to us. And Titus 3 gives us a real clear, clear picture of what the gospel is. Verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, He saved us. Let's just take a, a brief minute. I want to look at what the gospel is. Because I think we're a little confused with the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus died, lived a life, sinless, perfect in every way, died for our sins, and three days later rose again that all who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That is the gospel. That Jesus on the cross took care of our sin. That we don't have to live condemned. We don't have to live in slavery. We don't have to live bound by our flesh any longer. But through Christ, we have been made brand new. Not fixed, brand new new and because of the wonderful nature of god's grace i can come to him every day and say jesus i need you to forgive me of the sin i committed today so that i can live in right relationship with you not that i'm being saved every day but after that gospel decision i can go to him and he reminds me hey my grace is sufficient for you my grace will stand in the gap for you my grace and my mercy are the reason that I came to save you. So listen, I can look back at what I once was, but i got to stop and i got to think about what the gospel is. He saved us. And listen, I love the truth here that he didn't save us, according to verse 5, by my own righteousness, but he saved us according to his loving mercy. That's incredible. Ephesians 2, later on in 8 and 9, reminds us that we weren't saved by our works, but by grace and by faith alone. There's a view out there that says, you know, if I'm just a good person, God's going to be okay with me. If I'm a good person, I'll, I'll get to heaven. If I'm, as long as I'm rather moral, I'll be okay in the eyes of God. And that's not truth at all. There's nothing we can do to earn God's grace. And I think we have to be thoughtful of that truth. I work really hard to be a good, right, moral person. That work doesn't give me grace. God cannot love me any more than he already loves me. He can't give me any more grace than he's already given me. The grace he's given me is such a perfect grace that I can't do anything more to get more of it. I can't manipulate God that way. And if you're living a life where you're trying to manipulate God, you're going to be disappointed every time. Paul goes into detail about how this salvation reality happens. He uses words like regeneration and renewal 
of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon us richly. It's the idea of someone being cleansed, someone being washed over, and their sin washing away. Now, I don't want to be confusing here. It's not the picture of baptism. Over here we got a, a baptismal trough, and, and, and people walk in, and, and they'll get in that trough, and in that they are saying, I am a believer in Christ, I've trusted him as my Savior, and now I'm publicly professing that, that I, I was lowered in Christ, in his death, and I believe in the cross, and now I'm raised to walk in the newness of life. That is not a salvation experience, that is a profession of what they did in Christ. And they're showing others they've been raised with him. This reality here is not telling us that baptism was a way of salvation. Rather, it's saying, listen, the Holy Spirit, when he comes in, man, he scrubs your heart clean. I don't know if you guys, but I, I hate cleaning the shower. And if you like cleaning the shower, we need to talk later, okay? There's a special place for you, all right? I hate cleaning the shower because our showers, it's all tile and rock and stuff. And man, it's got these grooves in the floor. And so, you know, mold will get in there. And I got to get, I gotta get on my hands and knees, right? And I got this scrubber. And I got one of those deals on the, as seen on TV where you shove it into your drill. And you press the drill and it scrubs for you, which is kind of cool, by the way, right? But it gets away from me sometimes. Anyway, I'm on my hands and knees and I'm scrubbing away. Uh, this weekend, and I, it was like the, I had a list of chores I wanted to do. It was the last thing I got to. I just, I hate doing it. It's not my favorite thing. I'm the and so, you know, God speaks to me in some weird ways, right? So I'm literally on the shower floor. My hands in me, I got bleach in one hand, like comet scrub. In the, this, you guys really care about what I do on Saturdays. Anyway, and he's like, hey, you know, this is what I did in your life. I scrubbed you clean, brother. And guess what? The way I scrubbed you clean through the Holy Spirit, I don't have to scrub again. You are no longer condemned. My grace is sufficient for you. That's the grace to us. That is the perfect grace to us. Jesus offers it to all men, but men have to choose it. It's not something I can make you take. So you have to choose it. My daughter Lily, when she was a toddler, uh, my in-laws have a pool, we'd go and we'd swim and, and my older boys would jump off the diving board and jump and they would go and have a great time. And Lily, she was attached to my hip. And so I'd get in the water, man, she was like death grip, right? She didn't want to let go. And you know, she had the floaties and the ring, but it didn't matter. So we're, we're all bobbing, right? And I'm hanging on to her and she does not want to let go. And through a period of several weeks, sweetheart, you gotta let go, you gotta let go, you gotta let go. And, and eventually she made the choice to let go. And when she did, she was able to enjoy the experience of the freedom that the pool provided. She was safe. Tethered to me, limited. Some of you in this room need to let go of what you're holding on to, thinking that's going to give you truth, that's going to give you satisfaction, that's going to bring to your life purpose and meaning. Some of you need to let go of that so you can really experience the freedom that Christ offers. Grace is for us. The gospel is for us, the gospel to us. And last year, to give us a good, proper perspective, the gospel must come from us. The gospel must come from us. So the Bible says here in Titus that those who have believed in God, verse 8, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. This devotion of good works is important. This devotion doesn't just happen happenstance. It's not like I'm going through, oh, there's a good work I can do. Rather, this idea is that I'm living my life with the intent of doing good works. I'm ordering my life 
with the idea of how I can do good works to someone who doesn't know Christ. It's not just being a moral person. It's not just serving your family. It's thinking about ways you can serve those around you who are not part of God's family. That's what it means to be devoted and careful to do good works. It is a lifestyle. It's an intentionality. It doesn't just happen on its own because we will make ourselves busy with things that make ourselves happy. So we must be fueled and motivated to do good works. How? To remind ourselves where we once were and to remind ourselves what Jesus did. And that, if we have a proper gospel perspective, will really order our life to make sure that what we're doing in our day, what we're doing with our money, what we're doing with our vacation, what we're doing with our life, is to help others know who Christ is. We are devoted to good works. I shared this story before, but it's a little, it's worth repeating. When I was eight, I was invited to church. Lewis and Janie Cook invited me to church. They said, son, we're going to go to RA's First Baptist Church, Texarkana. But before we go, we're going to McDonald's for a Happy Meal. I don't know what RA's is, but I want that prize in the Happy Meal. And so I went. And if you don't know, I don't know what, I, I don't remember RA's. I remember the Bible drill. I don't remember knowing the Bible, though. That was fun. But I had the prize. And every week, Lewis Cook would roll up in that 1984 blue Suburban, and I'd get in with him and his four boys, and we'd go to church to RA's. But before we went to church, we stopped at McDonald's. Until so I came home one day, and I said, Mom, who was not a believer, I need Jesus. And she said, I don't know what that means, but she marched me down like a kid in trouble, actually. She marched me down like a kid in trouble to Lewis Cook's house, knocked on the door, and said, hey, my son said he needs to know Jesus. Can you help him with that? Lewis invited me into his dining room, where there I sat, and he shared with me the gospel. My unbelieving mom is next to me, hearing the gospel. I pray to receive Christ. She doesn't. But the thing of the truth is, the invitation wasn't the good work. The invitation wasn't the good work. It was the Happy Meal. It was a ride there, it was a ride back. It was listening to me jabber on and answering all my questions. The good work started at an invitation, but it continued with happy meals and rides and conversation. At 16, he gave me my first job. And at 17, when I was thinking and struggling with a call to ministry and where to go to school, I went to his house and we just talked and the good work continued. That didn't happen out of happenstance. Lewis Cook didn't need an eight-year-old boy to be a friend to him. I didn't bring anything to the relationship other than another Happy Meal. What I found in Lewis is what I hope to find in me and my children and our church. That Lewis, in his humility, because he probably had a good gospel perspective, he understood what he once was. And because of his good gospel perspective, he understood what Jesus did. And it compelled him to do good works, the gospel from him. And I think that's where we've got to start. We, the people, need to start at a place where we understand who we once were. Gospel for us. That we rest and rejoice in the truth of the, what the gospel did, that the gospel came to us. But listen, church, 
that's great. A lot of us stop there. We have got to order our life to remind ourselves that because of all Jesus did in us, that the gospel must flow from us. Devote yourselves to good works. So here's the truth of this morning. Some of you need to stop and you need to pray, God, how do you want me to order my life that the gospel would flow from me? Because I've been really selfish lately. If you were to look back on my life for the last year, you might not ever recognize that I've become more obedient in the last 12 months than I was the 12 months before that and the 12 months before that. Some of us get lost and locked in to a habit and a lifestyle where we come to church and we feel good, or maybe we come to church and we feel a little guilty, but nothing really ever changes. I want to challenge you to think about all that Jesus did for you and to really compel you to do more for him Today may be a day where you need to stop and pray and ask that question, God, how can I reorder my life? That may mean he reorders your bank account. It may mean he reorders your hobby time. It may mean you've got to reach out to people that you don't really want to reach out to. It may mean you've got to step back so he can step up in you and through you. Some of you in this room, when I talk about what you once were, the truth is you are still there. You're still being deceived, still living a life of malice and envy, still allowing the, the enemy in you to cause you to be disobedient. You've never come to a place where you trust Christ as your Savior. The idea that the, but God came into your life has never happened yet. I mean, don't leave today without trusting Christ as your Savior. And it's simple. It's about recognizing Him and believing in Him. This morning, you can do that today. You can do that in your chair. You can do that right now. You can speak to a staff person at the hub. You can speak to somebody around you you came with. Listen, today's the day of salvation for some in this room. Because the gospel is for you.